Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome listeners to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. Before us you heard Sally Goldner with her show Out of the Pen, discussing all issues queer. Tune in every Sunday from 12 to 1 to catch her show. My name is Davita and I'd like to personally acknowledge that I'm living, working and now broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. As an uninvited guest to this country, I acknowledge their resistance against ongoing colonization and I extend my respect for their continuing care for country. My fellow Freedom of Species host, Adam, is here too. Hello, Adam. Ahoy. We also have a special guest joining us today, the wonderful and talented Kate Hall, who is author of an award-winning young adult debut book, From Darkness. She is also working as an animal advocate on a thrilling book about xenotransplantation. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. It's really great to have you. So we'd love to kick off the show with um, yeah, getting to know you. Can you tell us a bit about your vegan journey and um, what led you on to that path? Sure. So before I begin, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the unceded lands and waterways of the Wadawurrung peoples. Um, uh, where I work and live and pay my respects, of course, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples everywhere in this country. Um, so I was, I went vegetarian when I was 12 and then I was vegan throughout most of my 20s. And then when I became pregnant in my late 20s, doctors said, oh, you know, you mustn't be vegan because, you know, your babies will be calcium deficient and they won't have enough B12. So it's okay for you to be vegetarian, but you go out and buy yourself a block of cheese and a tub of ice cream and then we'll stop bothering you. Um, and I believe them. I had a lot of pressure from, you know, various family members. And um, so that kind of chopped me off at the knees in a way with veganism for for quite some time. And it wasn't until... Um, you know, my late 30s that I was vegan again um, and then lapsed back to vegetarianism again, believing silly doctors and, and things they told me about health that I shouldn't have believed. Anyway, finally, flashback to the last few years where I just drew a line in the sand, went, nope, I'm vegan now, vegan for life. And um, my teenage kids, who were also long-term vegetarians, are now vegan as well. And I'm really proud of them for choosing this because, like me, you know, and like all of us who choose to be vegan, they cop a lot of amount, a lot of teasing and bullying, especially at school. That's horrible. Yeah, and I think it's easy to forget how mean other kids can be. So I'm really impressed by how well my daughters are travelling on their own journeys as animal advocates. Um, despite this constant opposition that they face all the time. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. And has there been a specific animal that sort of led you, led you onto this journey or that you've had in your heart or mind during this journey? Um, not necessarily. I think um, in the beginning it was probably sheep because I grew up um, across the road from a wool farm and I saw a lot of things happen over there and, you know, was told uh, some lies about the fact that, you know, mulesing, for example, was done for the good of the sheep and um, that sheep are killed humanely in slaughterhouses, you know, all of that stuff. 
And so I think that maybe got me thinking about things from a young age and certainly influenced my decision to go vegetarian when I was a kid. Um, but I think it was images of um, sows in farrowing cages that really, and, and veal calves that really, you know, showed me why I could no longer um, continue to um, to eat dairy products. And I know that the, you know, the sows doesn't relate to being vegan necessarily, but it's all part of the same industry. You know, the meat industry is the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes can't understand how I was vegetarian for so long without making that connection. Mm. But once you make the connection between, you know, um, cows and milk and veal calves and, you know, the way that that, that all works, it's, it's impossible to go back to, to eating dairy products, I, I think, anyway. And you made a distinction when talking about your daughters um, that – uh, that they're vegan but also animal advocates mm. and so do you consider yourself so I, I think there is a um a addition like animal advocacy is an addition to a vegan ethic do you consider yourself an animal advocate and in what ways do you advocate for animals well let's or have start, you done in the past let's yeah. start with the kids because they they stand up at school and say no I'm not doing that dissection you know, wow. they yeah. they go to the sausage sizzle and they cop a whole lot of abuse, basically, from other kids who say, why aren't you eating sausages? Why are you eating that veggie burger? The, in small ways, that is advocacy, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and then I'll go to the school and talk to the principal about, you know, why it is that kids in year seven are using chicken carcasses um, to model Egyptian mummification. Right, this goes on in in schools all over the country. Or why it is that um, kids in year, year I think it was year eight that this happened, year eight or nine, are being asked to dissect a sheep um, thorax, a chest of a sheep, um, and for what purpose? So, you know, small stuff. Mm -hmm. The other things that we do, the children and I, um, we do a lot of volunteer rescue and transport of. Um, free roaming, so-called wildlife, wild animals down here on the surf coast. And the group that we volunteer with um, is headed up by an incredible human called Jason Chukoki, who responds 24 hours a day to calls from the public about injured animals. And he spends every single morning and evening of his life going around and finding and euthanizing um, kangaroos and wallabies who've been hit by cars and left to die on our roads. So that's kind of the on-the-ground work that we do, I suppose, in, mm. in a very small way, helping individual animals. And, and Kate, were you already a writer when um, you became vegan? Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> but it never really occurred to me to write uh, a book about animals or centering the experience of animals until I started teaching a third-year literary studies unit, um, which had a, a quite a strong critical animal studies element to it. And once I encountered some amazing novels, uh, for instance, um, Eva Hornung's Dog Boy and um, Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, just to give two examples, I realised that there was um, this huge emergent and yet, you know, reasonably well-established field of you know, critical animal studies and literary critical animal studies that I could dip into. But the issue being a sessional academic is that um, it's really hard to find time around teaching commitments to do research. You know, sessional staff are not paid to do that. So in terms of academic output in, in that space, I've kind of given up, but I've realised that as a writer of fiction, I might have a chance of reaching people mm. through fiction, um, much more of a chance than I would have starting, you know, at my age to to try and publish in academic journals, for instance. That's and that's yeah. something I was um, I was chatting with someone earlier this week about this very topic: the um, the ability for literature and books to reach and um, change people um, and influence influence their thoughts, their ideas, their behaviours. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I know there's this growing, is it, 
I think they were working within eco-criticism, eco-literary um, criticism or something, mm, and mm. there's this um, move to do some more empirical work around seeing what impact books might have on people. Do you, do you have any sense for um, what impact literature can have on people? You, you teach it every yeah. all the time and you see it. <laughs> you see students engaging with literature on a weekly basis. What's your sense on on the the power of literature? Absolutely. I, I first of all, I think that empirical work sounds fascinating, and I'd love to know more about that. Um, well, it was a novel that made me go vegetarian when I was twelve. <laughs> and, um, wow. Yeah, it was a a horse book, one of those girls' horse books, um, where the the protagonist Ginny um, is confronted by Ken the Potter, who lives with them, who's um, a vegan, and he says, Ginny, if you love animals, why are you eating them? And all of a sudden, my 12-year-old brain just went, oh, yeah, <laughs> good point, Ken. Um, and that was that was just one scene from one novel where the, the power of that one question to a fic from one fictional character to another changed me completely. And, um, and I do see with the, the the literary ecology students that I'm fortunate enough to teach, the way that um, the shift in perception, the shift in thinking over the course of the trimester as they engage with um, ecological and critical animal studies ideas. And it is really profound. So, um, you know, the, the thing I'm writing at the moment, the, the novel in progress is informed by the, the small amount of research I've been able to do into xenotransplantation. And I know we're going to talk about what that is in a minute. Um, and it's just one of the myriad forms, really, of animal abuse in biomedical science. But animal experimentation, it's one of the last places people want to look. It's an, it's an abyss. So I think I'm trying to find a way to offer non-threatening glimpses into that and to encourage people to think critically about it. And for me, the best way to do that is to use genre fiction, which is typically considered to be popular fiction and fiction that people would pick up and read um, for entertainment rather than, um, you know, uh, let's say a literary classic, I'm doing scare quotes here, um, that, that might not be something that people would grab off the shelf in a bookshop or in mm. a library. Yeah. So, yeah. It's also so cool that there's this impact from fiction, whereas usually a lot of the animal advocates are trying it through visual visual images um, to change people's hearts and minds. But we, there's so many senses that we've got to, um, to be changed through. And it's so awesome to hear that that's possible through fiction. Absolutely. And novels take you on um, a journey. You know, the, Laura Jean McKay's The Animals in That oh, Country... Yeah. Yeah, you've read that. Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. No, well, I mean, and that's for me, that's it. that's an example of a novel that um, you know, and a, and an award-winning novel, which mm. is amazing in the animal space, that that's going to encourage people to think differently about the way that animals communicate with humans and humans yeah. communicate with animals and you know, the the potential for interspecies communication that 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 narrative opens up. It's it's an extraordinary book. Yeah, and and as you were saying, Kate, I think you know we we do in animal advocacy, as Davida was mentioning, we do use a lot of imagery, video, and those sorts of um, uh, formats. But books, literature, novels are a long form of engagement. You you mm -hmm. get to learn and grow with a character much more deeply than you would in a movie yeah i mean we all we all have those books where we read and it gets turned into a movie the movie's never as good no. all of those details are lost and mm. i i i wonder it's like it's a it's it's a form of um media that retains a real need to to engage for a long period of time where we're now in the tiktok age where it's 30 seconds of video content yeah Literature Absolutely. and novels and genre fiction, they offer a different way to engage with a topic that's, yeah. that's becoming rarer and rarer, I suppose. Yes, and I think, um, I think one of the wonderful things about fiction is that a good writer, good writing, um, will kind of etch 
images into your consciousness in a mm. way that makes it sometimes impossible to get rid of them so that you know they they'll bubble up and and surface in unexpected moments and um if i can just plug one more novel that i that i love that i think is yes, doing please. really interesting please. things um published a few years ago now it's locust girl by melinda bobus and this is really um you know a meditation on the way that we treat refugees and asylum seekers as much as it is um a kind of an interrogation of the way that humans treat non-human animals and um and marginalized individuals and groups of of you know lots and lots of, so it's it's a really intersectional kind of um in a way kind of a total liberation approach to a mm. story that features this this character called Amadea who we become really close to so when she encounters things that are um you know terrible and it affects her very viscerally it affects us as well because of that process of identification that happens with good writing particularly i think writing in the first person yeah 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 fantastic and maybe one more question before we take a break with a song but do you think your writing has changed as a vegan yeah absolutely Absolutely. So the my my debut novel is um a lesbian love story but it's also a young adult novel, mm. right? No, um and when I started writing that many years ago, I wasn't vegan, I was vegetarian and the animals in that novel, for instance, I had the the girls in the novel riding horses. And when I was editing the novel, um a year or two ago before publication, I I I couldn't cut that out because it's a whole, you know, part of a chapter, but I removed the bridles, I removed the saddles, and I did the best I could to at least ameliorate. So it's it's really kind of messed up the way that I I welfared <laughs> what happens with the horses in that novel and I'm not comfortable with it. So post that and when I started thinking about writing this new one, everything has changed. The whole approach has changed. And I've decided that I'm not writing anything again that doesn't um, fall in line with my vegan ethics. I just can't. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Maybe let's take a short break before we, um, yeah, start discussing your your Xeno transplantation work. So, Gates, do you want to introduce the the song you've chosen for today? Okay. So um, the reason I've chosen. On the Turning Away by Pink Floyd, um, which is from the 1987 album *Momentary Lapse of Reason*, is that it's often um, it's often described as a political statement about you know conservative governments and human apathy and the way that we block out the suffering of other humans. But for me, I've always wondered, and I've always thought, what if this was a song about factory farming or animals in laboratories? And I'm sure this has been done, but I've always pictured this song as a soundtrack to real-life footage of, you know, battery hens or pigs in farrowing cages or little baby calves in veal crates. And in the last few years, this has kind of shifted to and enlarged to include what I imagine xenotransplantation breeding facilities and laboratories must look like. So when I listen to this song, yes, I'm thinking about humans, but I'm also thinking about the song playing in the background while those images that we're all familiar with of animals in captivity and animals enduring lives of misery and suffering um, are revealed to people who most of the time would rather not see, would rather turn away. On the turning away From the pale and downtrodden And the words they say which we won't understand Don't accept that what's happening Is just a case of all the suffering Or you'll find that you're joining in turning away It's a sin that somehow Light is changing to shadow And come 
You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. I wanna drop food, not bombs. Hot trains, bottles, giving every info shop. I wanna give free therapy out in the park. Go to preschool, jumps, chiropractors, rocks, drop food, not bombs. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a food, not bombs fly on the road. And I had like this fist with a carrot. And carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back, listeners. You just heard On the Turning Away by Pink Floyds. Adam and I are here today with Kate Hall, discussing her animal advocacy through fiction and her book on xenotransplantation. Kate, could you give us an introduction to the book you're writing? Sure. So the story is narrated by a young woman called Mouse who escapes from a Xeno research lab where she was born. And the world outside, of course, is terrifyingly unfamiliar because she's only ever known the world of the lab. So, you know, we're firmly in dystopian science fiction genre territory here. Um, So Mouse is rescued by a group of outcasts and in particular by Rebecca, who is a resistance leader with a prosthetic arm and autumn coloured eyes. She's very beautiful. Um, This is a queer love story as well. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. And um, so the the novel's set in Australia around 50 years from now where, and it's in a future where the meat and dairy industries have responded to climate change by developing even more intensive practices. And this is due in part to the intersections of factory farming with xenotransplantation, which has now been really normalised. And in fact, there are a few people who remember a time when human patients didn't receive animal organs or cells as standard medical practice. So in this first scene, Rebecca has just rescued Mouse from the side of the highway in the middle of the night after she escapes from the lab. And on the way back to the hideout in the forest, Rebecca stops at a service station to buy food. And in this flashback, Mouse is remembering how she and the other children at the Institute, the Xeno Transplantation Institute, were put to work packing show bags for school groups and other visitors to the lab. All the hot food in there had real meat in it, Rebecca tells me, so we're stuck with chips and muesli bars for now. When we get to my place, someone will cook you something decent. She tears the plastic wrapper off her muesli bar with her teeth. I'm not sure why Rebecca doesn't seem to like meat, especially real meat, but I copy her, unwrapping my own muesli bar and tasting the sweetness of the dried fruit and the salty crunch of toasted oats. It's delicious, and so is the chilled water in its clear plastic bottle. At the Institute, we used cups for drinking, never bottles. 
the only water bottles I ever touched were the blue metal ones, stamped in silver with the Institute logo, a circle with two crossed lines through it and a DNA strand woven through them. These bottles went in the special visitor bags, along with the pamphlets, the black pens with the logo in miniature and the name of the Institute along one side, and a plush toy, pig or monkey or mouse, one for each bag, no more, no less. The stuffed animals had little black jackets with the word hero printed on the back in bright blue letters. We all wanted one. I especially craved the mice, but we understood these were not for us. That was, um, that was, yeah, that was really nice, Kate. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what, what strikes me from that, um, that reading is mouses. Well, there seems to be mouse um, has questions about meat and why maybe you wouldn't want to eat meat. Also, this um, the hero on the back of the shirts of the stuffed animals. That's that's excellent. I think, <laughs> and that that mouse isn't allowed to be a hero. Mouse isn't even though these plush toys are representing mouse. You know, are a um, uh, a representation of who mouse is or what mouse stands for. I suppose, um, but yeah, that's really. It's really powerful imagery. Well, mouse is, mouse is ostensibly human or human in appearance, but, um, you know, she's, she's, without giving too much away and blowing the plot, <laughs> um, she has been the subject of illegal, you know, human xenotransplantation, xenotherapy experiments. Um, and so she, I think she identifies with, and, and the next part that I'll read later might, make this a bit clearer she identifies with actual mice but there's a species barrier there and I'm really interested in exploring that mm. and to go back to the the meat question I think that probably mouse doesn't ever question it until she leaves the the institute because she eats what she's given and she hasn't got access mm. to food otherwise or any choice about what she eats nor are they of course the children who, who are brought up there encouraged to ask questions or offered access to facts about what they're eating. So Sounds a lot mm. similar to everyday life, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about xenotransplantation? What is it? Okay. Does it exist? Is it just a fantasy fiction in your book? Oh, if only that were true, Adam. No. So xenotransplantation is the practice of transplanting living tissues, cells and organs from one species to another. So not many people have heard about it or the extent of what scientists aim to do with it. It has a long and grisly history. So humans have attempted to perform xenografts using animal blood and skin and bones and other body parts um, from at least the 17th century. But xenotransplantation of whole organs um, has is yet to be successful, um, as far as I know, right, not being a scientist, because for a couple of reasons, um, one of which is because the human immune system will just reject the foreign organ. But the holy grail for contemporary scientists is whole organ transplants, primarily from pigs um, to humans, and this will apparently overcome the global shortage of human don donor organs for people with chronic disease. And this is, of course, serious business for the industries which stand to benefit from this so-called research. And it's it's happening close to home as well. I think may maybe now is the time to play that recording so p listeners can have an idea of, of what it is. Yeah. What we're going to play now is a small part of a radio interview by journalist Lindsay McDougall of ABC Radio Illawarra, who interviews a company looking to use kangaroo ligaments for human body parts. Is it the obvious reason why kangaroo tendons are a good candidate, good material for these surgeries, just because they're really good at jumping? Well, uh, they're really good at jumping. They're, they're strong, but we also have an opportunity to build um, a business from Australia that is geographically defensible. It's very hard for others <laughs> around the world to get hold of kangaroos to come up with the same solution. This is what, uh, from, from, from kangaroo farming, like leftovers, that kind of thing? One part of the kangaroo that's often um, discarded and has no value is the tail. All the way down that tail, you've got a ligament that can be used for several patients potentially. So the opportunity is actually to... Um, uh, see less of the animal actually going to waste and more going to value. 
So this was to give listeners an idea of xeno, of a form of xenotransplantation using kangaroos. Um, that makes it pretty, um, yeah, pretty vivid. It's just horrendous, isn't it? I'd really like to challenge um, David Shooter, um, his, his claim that the tails, for instance, are going to be um, used and, and that the, the ligaments will be sourced as kind of, you know, byproducts or waste products from kangaroo farming. Everything that I've read about xeno um, transplant breeding facilities suggests that you can't do that because of the, you know, the risk of cross-contamination. So as far as I know, um, with pigs, for instance, they have to be held in biosecure facilities under really rigid um, hygiene, um, you know, conditions to to minimise the risk of zoonosis, you know, of disease transmitting mm. from animals to humans. Um, and that, you know, the, the bodies of these so-called source animals, and, and this is in the FDA um, documentation, uh, at least in the States and, and also here in the in, in MHRC policy documents, you've got to get rid of these, um, the rest of the animal once you've harvested what you want from it because it's medical waste. So there, it's, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm calling mm. bullshit on that. I don't think that's right at all. But, and it's, it's just a way of garnering public support to to get people to think that this is something that is not going to be okay and, and ethically sound, but something that we would want to embrace as a nation. You know, there's a real nationalist um, flavour to this, you know, nationalism and capitalism coming together to mm-hmm. grow something homegrown, you know, hooray for us. Poor old kangaroo just seems to keep on getting it, <laughs> doesn't it, from Australia? Any chance we get, yeah. we try to... Um, take what we can from the poor old kangaroo. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, there's there's a 2018 article um, where David Shooter, who's the CEO of this um, company called the Innovative Manufacturing Cooperative Research Centre, um, and the article is titled, Can Skippy Disrupt the Sports Injury Repair Market? And all the, you know, so-called grey literature, um, you know, the... The news articles and and so on that you see if you if you look into this have similar titles you know jokey titles mm. about bouncing bouncing back from a sports injury blah 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 but in that article he's quoted as you know boasting about this that the delivery of the kangaroo xenograft and I'm quoting here with unique 3D printed screws as an off the shelf product would be a world first breakthrough in the global orthopedic medical device industry developed and manufactured in Australia using homegrown materials and know-how. But what's I think what's really insidious about this, um, you know, if I can just pick one thing, is that, um, you know, it, the research is, is happening at the University of Sydney, but most universities in Australia support animal research in one form or another. And, in fact, um, Cruelty Free International estimates that Australia is actually fourth on the list in terms of animals used annually in laboratories. So there's China um, at 20.5 million, and then you know Japan, the US, Canada, and Australia comes in fourth on the list of a very long list of countries with an estimate of 3.2 million animals used. But that's a, a gross underestimate because we know that you know universities and other organisations don't disclose all of their experiments and they're not forthcoming about the number of animals used. Um, Rachel Smith, the CEO of Humane Research Australia, gave a a talk recently for Deakin's Critical Animal Studies Research Network um, and she talked to exactly this point that because universities um, and, and research facilities are not forthcoming about the numbers of animals used or what goes on, it can be really difficult to get an accurate sense of what's happening behind the closed doors of the lab. And that's why, to my way of thinking, the kangaroo research and the way that this is being spruiked in the media is so bizarre. The public nature of this, the gloating, you know, it kind of runs counter to the the abject secrecy with which most biomedical research is usually carried out. And I think that that's particularly terrifying that scientists are willing to bring this into the public eye and boast about it. I just, it, it terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. 
And can we hear more of your work, Kate? Sure. So in this next scene, um, Mouse has just discovered her history. Um, so it's been encoded on a microchip, which has been surgically removed from her wrist. And this is a tracking device that she didn't realize she was carrying when she escaped from the lab. And um, Rebecca and the other members of the resistance organization have taken her to their medical lab on the outskirts of the city to have this chip removed. And in this scene, Mouse is reading about her history um, as they drive back to their haven. It takes me a minute or two, but I figure out what DOB stands for and I do some mental math. I'm 27 years old. I let that wash over me for a bit, then allow the other information to rush into my mind where it obliterates everything else. Three things stand out. There's nothing here about a mother or a father. I've always been suitable for release. And I'm part mouse. My stupid nickname, the one I chose for myself, is not just a nickname after all. Outside the car, the red-tinged badlands are giving way to the first scattered trees as the light fades. I can hear the hum of the engine and my own blood rushing in my ears. The darkening sky is cloud-heavy and full of rain. Nobody has spoken since we left the med lab under its strange labyrinth of metal boxes. In the silence, I turn these new facts about myself over and over like a puzzle without any clues. The age thing is too much to process, so I concentrate instead on the bizarre coincidence of my name. None of the other children could have come up with a direct biological match. Nobody wanted to be called pig or baboon or rat, and Thryson didn't keep falcons or bears or dolphins at the Institute, at least as far as I know. Goose Girl definitely didn't have goose DNA, Plus, she chose her name from a fairy tale about an actual girl. And Swallow, my Swallow. There were no swallows in or around the Institute. These animals lived in the illustrated books in the library and in our imaginations. We chose our names when we started school. It was an important initiation. You'd stand at the front of the class and declare it, shucking off your baby name like an unwanted plaything. Because I was the youngest, all the others had already chosen their names long ago. I'd only been in the dormitory a few days, still gravel-eyed from crying myself to sleep, when Swallow took my hand and led me to the library. She opened a book of fairy tales and showed me the picture of the tiny birds that inspired her choice. Swallow's baby name had been Miller. She wrote it down for me on a scrap of paper and wrote my name, Lena, next to it. Then she invited me to tear the paper to bits, which I did, watching the tiny pieces scatter like snowflakes on the polished concrete of the library floor. I remember how proud I was to stand in front of the class that afternoon and tell everybody that I'd shed my baby name and chosen the name Mouse because mice were cute and clever. I clutched the book that inspired my decision and as I spoke my new name, opened it to show the pictures. It was The Tale of Two Bad Mice by Beatrix Potter. Good ending. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Could you, Kate, I'm so intrigued by how you how you have crafted mouse as part human, part mice and um part mouse and she um also you mentioned before that she identifies with um with mice. Could you explain a bit more how that creative process looked like for you to craft that? Like how do you imagine mouse mm. and how do you imagine mice i think i think it came about um you know usually usually if i'm if i'm writing something the characters just kind of appear which is a really predictable thing for a fiction writer to say but with mouse i'd been reading so much about xenotransplantation. That's one of the great things about working at a university. You've got access to university libraries and you can read whatever you like. So I decided to be the humanities person who got stuck into the scientific journals. <laughs> and I'd, I'd read quite a lot and, and I'd seen quite a lot of images of um, mice that had been had their DNA altered using um, this technology called CRISPR, which you know is a, a gene editing tool. So that um, by the time I came to think about this book and, and this story, I knew that I wanted mouse to be, um, you know, chimeric, part human, part mouse. But she has to sort of, for me, she had to look human and, and feel in many ways human 
because when she goes into the outside world where everybody is chimeric because they've all accepted long ago, except for a, a small, very wealthy um, section of the population who retain their so-called human purity, um, everybody else is chimeric. So what does it look like when you've got a world where this um, very transhumanist impulse to to cure disease and to um, achieve longevity by using uh, animal organs and DNA and tissues as a matter of course, does that change the way people think about themselves? Does it change the way they look? Does it change their interactions with other people? I think I'm still very much figuring that out. But I wanted Mouse's experiences at the lab to mirror as much as possible the experiences of actual mice in a lab. Mm. So there's a lot that, you know, I haven't read today because I don't want to depress people and maybe it won't make it into the final manuscript, I don't know, about the procedures that Mouse um, endures at the hands of, you know, Dr. Thrice and the evil scientist um, and the kinds of imprisonment and and um, isolation and the withholding of affection that she also endures as a child. So I'm trying to maybe feel my way through those connections, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's so amazing to be able to do that as a writer, to sort of feel your way through these connections and, and imagine and empathize with mice stuck in a laboratory. Does mm. it also bring joy in a way? Uh, it depends on what I'm writing. So when I'm writing flashbacks um, with Mouse's childhood and the things that she sees and, and endures and experiences at the lab, no, I'd say that's that's fairly harrowing and depressing and I often need to have a break. Um, but when I'm writing, you know, a love scene, for example, um, or a scene where there's some hope that Mouse is going to find her way um, through and and perhaps, you know, and I, I don't even know how the story ends, so I can't blow the plot, but there has to be, um, there have to be bright spots amid all the despair. And, and, you know, I'm writing a book, people are going to just throw it away if it's a novel of ideas, you know, where I'm preaching at people. You can't do that. So, yeah, it's, I guess yes and no. There, it's it's sometimes a joyful process and sometimes a really grueling process because I shuttle back and forth between the scientific literature and the creative artifact, and that can be, um, you know, as anyone knows who who exposes themselves to those um, facts and and stories about what happens to animals in laboratories, um, it is it's fairly dark. It's really grim. So, but yeah, as a writer, sometimes I'll come up with a sentence or a turn of phrase or a few words that just feel like they they ring true and there that's where the joy is for me in the process that's where i on yeah. the um on xenotransplantation it's a, a fait accompli that mm. we do get this future world where it does seem you know there was a few years ago i think there's a really big factory um or for xenotransplantation being uh or finished in China somewhere, so huge sort of pig mm -hmm. pig factory. Thousands of individuals will be um, yep. brought up there. Um, and obviously it's happening already in, in many ways. I remember a friend, after, after meeting you, Kate, and talking about this stuff a couple of years ago, a friend just emailed me out of the blue saying, um, wondering whether they should, they had to get a gum transplant um, mm -hmm. and they had the option to go with a cadaver transplant mm -hmm. a um, synthetic transplant or a pig gum transplant mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. of course the pig gum transplant was far cheaper like it, yeah. it was far far cheaper than any other option or the other options were yeah. were sort of a thousand dollars more sort of thing um, is it is it inevitable that we that animals are exploited in this way on mass or is there an alternative future that's possible do you think um, it's so funny that you say that about gum transplants because that was sort of the, one of the catalysts that got me thinking about xenotransplantation. The same thing happened to me, only in my case, the xenograft I was offered was bovine, mm. like from a cow. Mm. And um, I was really fortunate that my, my dad stepped in and said, all right, I'll pay for it. And I got to, you know, have the transplant um, where they took tissue and stuff from my own body um, to build that up because 
it's really it's kind of cooked, isn't it? That the <laughs> the cheapest option is is the animal one, and then after that, mm. you know, it's the cadaver. And then if you are fortunate and privileged enough to be able to bypass all of that, um, then you can have your own bone or tissue to fix any problems you might have. Look, there of course there is an alternative future to this. We could be investing money in um, organs on a mm. chip. We could be investing money in any number of non-animal models in these, um, you know, so-called preclinical trials. But I, I wish I could say that I don't think it's a fait accompli, but it, the more I read, the more I'm convinced that the scientists are going to get their way. Um, and one mm -hmm. of the reasons is that there, was a mor there were several mor moratoria in, in Posed. And in the late 1990s and the 2000s, the World Health Organization put a worldwide ban on Xeno research, but that's been lifted. And it was, um, I think it was lifted in 2009 in Australia. And so, um, because it's already happening, like for example, in the States, skin grafts for burns victims come from pigs primarily, and, mm. um, and no one's questioning that. And there are really interesting kind of human ethical questions about this as much as there are very obvious animal rights problems associated with it. So it's one thing to have, um, for instance, bone from a, a pig or a cow grafted into your, your gum or, um, you know, a piece of skin on your arm that comes from a pig. But it's a very different thing when you have a whole organ and you live the rest of your life on immunosuppressant medication under mm. constant medical surveillance, not allowed to have children, all your sexual partners have to get tested constantly. And, you know, the, the impact on the human recipients um, is something that, of course, needs to be considered just as much as the, mm. the countless non-human animals that are being um, subjected to abuse and torture in these research facilities. Mm. And is that because of the risk for zoonotic disease transmission? Or Yeah, absolutely. And that's why scientists are trying to develop um, ways around that. And one of the things that they're doing is they're using CRISPR to alter the DNA of um, certain organs and, and injecting, say, um, uh, piglets with human DNA, which grows a human kidney in a pig. So that when you take that human kidney out of the pig and put it in the human recipient, human recipient is less likely to reject it. Um, but I mean, if you if you look at the scientific literature, the reason that I'm not particularly positive about this, Adam, is that this, I've got a quote here, and this is indicative, right, of the attitude. And um, there's quite a lot of chat about the impact of COVID-19 on Xeno research, right, as, as I'm sure you know. But in a recent paper um, out of the University of Birmingham in the USA, um, the authors of the paper say that the current COVID-19 pandemic should not impact plans for clinical trials of organ xenotransplantation because given the biosecure conditions under which organ source pigs will be housed, there will be no realistic chance that such an infectious agent will be transferred through a pig organ transplant. And then they go on to say, um, and this is often in conjunction with a statement about, you know, animal welfare advocates and how they're trying to shut everything down and how we have to keep our fa facilities, you know, secret. And, and it's a real thing, you know, they, um, they don't want animal advocates to get in and see what's going on in these facilities. So mm. they go on to note that there will always be those who object to the use of animals. But the fact that in the USA alone, more than 100 million pigs are slaughtered each year for food reduces the concern for using pigs for these life-saving procedures. Mm. This is exactly an instance where, you know, these industries uphold each other. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, we're getting close to the end. Shall we end with another, another snippet from your work? Certainly. All right. So the last scene... Um, that I want to read is, um, again, a flashback in which Mouse recalls spying on Dr. Thryson in his private laboratory. A distant memory creeps across my consciousness and becomes clearer the more I let it emerge. I must have been quite young, perhaps 10 or 11 years old, though my age is clearly something else I've been seriously misled about, but young enough that I needed to be lifted up 
so that I could, if I craned my neck, peer through the narrow window into Thryson's private lab. There was only the one window set deep into the thick concrete wall at the rear of this forbidden building, and I remember I'd been dared by one of the other girls to look in. Just the memory of the terror of being caught makes the skin prickle on my arms. But I was clinging uncomfortably to this windowsill, looking in, and I saw Thryson standing over a table on which there was an elaborate and very complicated maze constructed from clear plastic, wires, metal boxes, and pale wood. He was poking at his tablet with his stumpy index finger, and his rimless glasses were pushed down the bridge of his nose so he could squint over the top of them at the brown and white mouse running through the maze. I remember being set down awkwardly by the girls who'd been holding me up and reporting to Goose Girl, it would have been Goose Girl who dared me to look, that I hadn't seen anything interesting. He's just standing there watching a mouse run around a maze, I said, absorbing the disappointment of the other girls. I'd watched so many of these experiments in the public education lab that it didn't occur to me at the time to question why Thryson was so intent on studying the mouse in the maze. I was always more interested in the mice themselves. I used to imagine, fueled by my childhood storybook fascination with all things miniature, that the mice were happy in their little labyrinths. They must have enjoyed, as I would have if I'd been mouse-sized, exploring all the tunnels and trying to figure out how to solve the puzzle to reach the food reward. To be fair, I didn't know about the electric shocks they received if they became trapped in the wrong part of the apparatus, though I understood the sad necessities of food deprivation, having sat through interminable hours of Thryson's droning lectures to school groups about proper experimental procedures. My child brain, sheltered from the realities of science and crammed full of picture book stories of clever, happy, resourceful animals, did not have the necessary knowledge to bypass the public narrative. It never occurred to me until now that those mice were not enjoying themselves. My stomach rolls with nausea as I realise that the mouse I saw that day would not have been in it for the game, though they would have been hungry enough, having been starved for days beforehand, to chase down the food. None of the hundreds of thousands of mice at the Institute would ever have liked being trapped in that series of tiny boxes and cages and endless tunnels. They would, of course, have been trying desperately to find a way out of the maze. Wow. Thank you. Goosebumps. <laughs> thank you, Davita. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. It was thrilling to hear you talk about your work and also hear your work itself. So thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Davita. Thank you, Adam. It's always really lovely to talk to both of you. And it was a joy to hear more of more of Mouse's story, Kate. I look forward to um, to reading the full thing one day. Oh, don't worry. I'll, I'm going to sling it to you as soon as it's finished. It's coming. <laughs> Put me on that list too, please. And okay. if listeners want to find your work, where where do where can they find that? Um, I'm on Instagram as Kate Hazel Hall author. Just quickly, um, your previous work, what, what was the name of that book if people have um, been tantalised by your <laughs> readings? They can get a, they can have a read of your actual work that's published. Um, what was the name of the book? It's called From Darkness. It's published by Duet Books, which is um, the young adult imprint of Interlude Press in New York. Fantastic. And you could find that um, online, Everywhere. I'm sure. <laughs> So thank you, listeners. Freedom of Species will be back next week on Sunday from 1 till 2 p.m. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, or send us an email with your thoughts about this or any other show. We always love to hear from you. The email is freedomofspecies at gmail.com. We'll be finishing with the song Yumenda Papagunare, the turtle song by Emily Wuramara. Today, today.
to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.